0: Well, good morning. Thank you for uh, being with us uh, here at Ivy Creek. And, and thank you so much for, for honoring uh, me and the other pastors and staff of uh, this wonderful church. It is a truly wonderful place to serve and to be a part of. And, uh, and I, I just want you to know I'm humbled and I'm very grateful to be your pastor. Um, I feel much the same way about you that the Apostle Paul felt about the church in Philippi. In fact, if you've got your Bibles with you, and I hope that you do, take them and turn with me to Philippians chapter 4, because I want to read a verse to you that we looked at and we peeked at briefly last week. It's the It was really the final verse of the previous section that we studied, but it's the first verse in the chapter. and And Paul writes to the church in Philippi these words. He says, therefore, my beloved and longed for brethren, my joy and my crown, so stand fast in the Lord, beloved. And what I want you to note is that Paul is filled with so much love and so much appreciation. The church in Philippi meant so much to him that he, he couldn't stop telling them exactly what they meant to him. In fact, in fact, twice he calls them beloved. He, he tells them that they are his longed-for brethren. In other words, he yearns for them in his soul. And then he calls them also his joy and his crown. And I want you to know I love you folks here at, at, at Ivy Creek the same way. You you are truly my joy and my crown. I, I, I have the opportunity to spend time with folks uh, at, at the state office, I have times to be able to drive around and get to meet with other pastors, and 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 I just want you to know, um, folks know about you here at Ivy Creek. They ask me about you all the time, and and it is truly a joy to be able to. Sometimes it's like I, somebody shoved a coat hanger in my mouth. I'm just smiling all the time <laughs> when I'm talking about you because. It is truly a wonderful place to be called and to serve. You are a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful family of believers. And I, I feel very humbled and I feel very grateful to be called your pastor. It was a little over 11 years ago that there's some of you in this room that were on that committee that, that recommended me to the church. There's some of you in this room who were in the building the day that y'all voted to call uh, me as your pastor 11 years ago, and I have been grateful for that ever since. The Lord has brought many, many more of you into our church family since that day, and it is truly a wonderful, wonderful place for me to be able to stand here week after week after week and continue to open God's Word and to feed you from it, but to also be fed from you, from the encouragement that you provide me, from the prayers that you pray on my behalf, and for the things that you do that oftentimes don't make it out for public consumption, but there's so many ways that you have blessed my family, and I am truly, from the very bottom of my heart, grateful to be your pastor. So thank you. Thank you for honoring me. I feel like it should be the other way around, but nevertheless, I am truly grateful to be here. Um, I'm grateful for what God has done. Now, we're going to continue... This morning And our exposition, so you're already open to the spot. We're going to pick up in verse 2 now, and we're going to move down through verse 9 as we continue this series entitled, Who Are We? And who are we here at Ivy Creek? We are you all, gospel-first, servant-hearted, family of believers who want our lives to count for the glory of God. That's who we are. And I believe as we continue to move forward in the exposition of this letter, you're going, to, uh, you're going to be reminded of some things, though, that even though we are all those things, we're all those things that we just described there, and we are a wonderful church family to be a part of, you know what we're also going to figure out? We're going to figure out that we, we are exactly who we say we are every time somebody joins this church. We are an imperfect family. There's nothing perfect about us. There's nothing perfect about your staff, not a one of us that was standing up here on the front. And not a one of you sitting out there in the congregation is perfect. And we just all acknowledge that and we wear it right up front. And we acknowledge it and we move forward with that. As wonderful as this church family is, is that we are, we are people who desire for our lives to, to be uh, like Christ. And we want to live like Christ. We also realize that we fail in that endeavor every day. And whenever we fail in that, we not only fail our lords, we not only fail ourselves, we fail our brothers and sisters in Christ. Listen, when that happens within the context of the church, feelings can often get hurt. Relationships can sometimes become damaged. Fussing and fighting and feuding can take place. Unfortunately, the family of God can all too often look like a war zone instead of a place of worship. I'm grateful that's not our testimony here at Ivy Creek, but I know that such reality exists And I'm reminded of the trite but very true rhyme that has long since lost its author. To live above with the saints we love, oh, that will be glory. But to live below with the saints we know, well, that's another story. (laughs) Now, based upon what we read and we continue to study here in Philippians 4, that was evidently true for at least some of the believers there in Philippi particularly for a couple of women in the church who had obviously had a falling out with one another. And I have entitled today's sermon Dealing with Disputes and Difficulties because that's exactly what sometimes has to occur within a church family. So let's see how Paul dealt with it. There in beginning in verse 2 of Philippians chapter 4, he writes this, I implore Euodia and I implore Syntyche, to be of the same mind in the Lord. And I urge you also, true companion, help these women who labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also, and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. Be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication. With thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue and if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. The things which you learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do, and the God of peace will be with you. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God for the people of God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this day, and we thank you for this time that you have given to us this morning to open your word, and to read it, and to study it. Now we pray that you would use it to impact our lives and change us for the glory of God and for our own goods, we pray in Christ's name. now is probably a pretty good time to be reminded that when a letter like the book of Philippians, like this letter, was written to a church family, just as this one was, it was customary for the church to gather together, just as we have gathered together this morning, and that letter be read aloud for everyone in the church to hear. Now, with that being understood you might imagine the gasps that would have erupted among the congregation when Euodia and Syntyche's names were called out publicly because of an ongoing dispute between the two of them. One writer has put it this way, if anyone was nodding off in the Philippian assembly while the letter was being read, they were awake now. We don't know anything about Euodia and Syntyche, Other than their names seem a little odd to us when we read it and we hear those names, but we recognize that that, that these were names that were common at the time, but we don't know anything about these ladies. Many have surmised that they were a part of the group of women who, along with Lydia, met along the riverbanks there in Philippi when in Acts 16 we read that the Apostle Paul came into town and shared the gospel and Lydia gave her heart and life to Christ at that point. Many have surmised that these ladies were there, but we don't know that to be true. We also don't know what caused the two women to become at odds with one another. We don't know what their beef was with each other. I don't believe it was a theological or a doctrinal issue because if it had been, I think the apostle Paul would have weighed in on the subject and would have settled the matter. Well, whatever it was, though, that divided them was significant enough that a public feud had occurred and a fight that was so serious that it became a threat to the harmony and the peace of the Philippian church. In fact, with some hindsight now, we read back some of the earlier passages that Paul has already written in the book of Philippians. We realize he was leading up to this point all along. Think about it this way. That key verse that we first read back in chapter 1, verse 27, listen to it now in light of the recognition of this this argument between these two women. There, Paul writes, only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ So that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving not against one another, he says, but striving together for the faith of the gospel. Now we begin to understand a little more of why he wrote some of what he did. Philippians 2, verses 2 through 4, listen to what he wrote there. Fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than themselves. And let each of you look out not only for his own interest, but also for the interest of others. That brings it a little more clearly into context. Also down in verse 14 of chapter 2, he says, Do all things without complaining. Or disputing. You see, what Paul had been hinting at earlier in this letter, he now addresses specifically. And he does so in a particularly significant way. Notice how Paul does what he does. He addresses each of these women equally. He, he says, I implore or I plead with or I urge Euodia, And I implore, I plead with, I urge He He's very even-handed in how he deals with these two. He's not taking sides. Rather, he is exhorting each of these women in the dispute with equal firmness. In fact, Chuck Swindoll, he notes that the verb that Paul uses leaves the impression that both women were at fault and, and that both of them actually had to be Urge to move to the common ground that existed between the two of them because both had departed from it. And that common ground is evidenced in what Paul says to the women. He implores them, listen, to be of the same mind in the Lord. To be of the same mind in the Lord. In other words, Paul's admonition to both women is for them to live in harmony with one another. And to do that, they needed to be in the Lord. They had to have the same mindset that the Lord had. And that's what brings me to the first point. And the first really, the summary statement that I want to provide for you this this morning on your outline is that based upon what Paul says to these women, we too must recognize that our relationships must be governed by the mind of Christ. Our relationships must be governed by the mind of Christ. Now, I think the most obvious way to understand what Paul says here really is to to look back at Philippians 2. I'm not going to ask you to turn there, but go back and read that again. Because back in chapter 2, beginning particularly in verse 5, he's already told these believers that they should have the same mind that Christ had. And how did he describe that mind? Well, it was a mind that, that put the needs of others ahead of his own. It was a mind that led him to leave all the glories of heaven to come to earth to become the atoning sacrifice for sin. And our Lord's mindset was marked by selfless service and sacrifice for the sake of the gospel. And Paul has already urged all of the believers there in Philippi to to adopt this same mindset, to allow it to be that which directed the way that they lived. And now with that example firmly etched in their minds, Paul comes back here and he tells you, Ode and Sintiki, he says, look, that same mindset has to become yours. It has to impact the personal relationships that you have with one another. That, that attitude of, that, that Christ had has to become your attitude and the way that he treated you has to become the way that you treat others. Now let's be honest, that's just plain hard, isn't it? He's meddling now, you know. We like it when he's preaching the other side, but when he gets in there and starts ringing the bells and rattling the pans in our own kitchen, it's a little tough. It's tough to live like this. It was obviously hard for you, Odie and Syntyche. It was so hard that they weren't doing it. They weren't living by and they weren't operating with the mind of Christ. And what Paul is prescribing To allow the mind of Christ to prevail over our lives so that we live in harmony with one another. Well, that's just not always easy to do. It's not always easy to settle matters of disagreement. Sometimes the hurt is too much. The way I like to describe it is sometimes the egg gets scrambled and you can't separate the yolk from the white anymore. It's just... It's hard to do. Things, things get past the point that we don't know exactly how, what, what started it, but we don't know how to separate things back out anymore. Sometimes those wounds are just too difficult. Sometimes we don't want to fess up to the fact that we, we own some of what's going on. Some of this is our fault, and, and we just don't want to fess up to that. Sometimes, sometimes I think that it's just the fact that we just lose the ability to figure out how to talk to one another. Which is why I think Paul tells this unnamed true companion of his here that that he needs to also help them in settling their dispute. It was obvious that they had not been able to do it on their own. Notice, though, that Paul reminds them of what they held in common. He reveals that both of these women had labored with him in the gospel. He, He also says they, along with another man named Clement, as well as others, they had had their names recorded in the book of life. In other words, to put it in the terms of the sermon that we preached last week, they knew who they were, they knew to whom they belonged, and they knew where they were going. Both of these women did. They were women who who the gospel had been of utmost importance in their lives. When Paul says that they labored with me, he uses a Greek word there that means that they had engaged in battle with him. In other words, they had, they had literally put, put, gone to arms in order for the advancement of the gospel alongside the apostle Paul. And this had been their common goal in the past, but now, rather than battling and striving for the gospel, they are battling and striving against each other. And and Paul is telling them that they once again need to rally themselves around the gospel of Christ and let it be the common ground that allows them to settle their dispute. Brothers and sisters, we need to mark this. This is important for the body of Christ That gathers together and assembles itself into a church family. We recognize that we are not perfect and that we will fail one another. But when that happens, we need to recognize that as a you all gospel first family of believers, we are to be of one mind and one spirit. And we are to strive together for the sake of the gospel, not against one another, for the sake of our own personal agendas. Because we are who we are in Christ, we have the responsibility to live out our faith and settle our conflicts and not nurture them. Now, it's at this point that Paul has really laid things out and everybody in the entire room is awake and they're listening to what's going on. And I imagine they're waiting to see where the next shoe is going to fall. Who's he going to call out next? They're all very attentive to exactly what Paul Paul is going to say which makes the transition to me a little interesting. Uh, he shifts gears. Did you notice that? Paul shifts gears in the letter. And he shifts gears to, re- to resurrect this theme of joy that he continues to go back to over and over again throughout this letter. And it's such a prominent, prominent theme. And in verse 4, he, he's, he does this. He, he gives us one of the most probably uh, memorable verses in the entire letter. He says, Rejoice in the Lord always, again, I will say, rejoice. Two times in one verse, we are commanded to rejoice. Now, do you just find that strange? I mean, he's just called these two women out and told them to settle their dispute, and then twice he tells everybody, rejoice. Which makes it a little strange to figure out how what is, he, what is he talking about? Well, here's where I think the tie-in comes. You see, the hard part about this verse, 4, I don't think is the fact that Paul tells us to rejoice. He's he's a man of joy. He he talks about rejoicing all the time. The tie-in comes with the one word that he uses, always. You see, the hard part about this verse to me is not that Paul tells me to rejoice. The hard part about this verse is Paul tells me to rejoice always. That's the hard part. You see, these two women... And perhaps many others in that Philippian congregation were disgruntled. They were upset. They were agitated. They were angered with each other. Paul says they ought to be joyful instead. Always. Now that's where it hurts. That word always is a confounding little word to me. Because it literally means that in every situation that I come into in my life, I am to rejoice. That means when things don't go my way, I'm to rejoice. That means when one of you upset me, I'm supposed to rejoice. That means when, 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 when my football team doesn't win, I'm supposed to rejoice. That means when things come along in my life that disrupt the things that I'm trying to accomplish, I am to rejoice. That means, that means when someone who I love hurts me deeply and I'm left with the wounds of their words or their actions. I am to rejoice. That's what makes this verse hard. And it's what really nails it into the context of what Paul's talking about. I love what Karl Barth has got. When, when Karl Barth, who's a German theologian, wrote about this, he says, this kind of joy that Paul is writing about in verse four is a, is a nevertheless joy. It's a joy that says, I'm rejoicing. Even so, whatever may come my way, I'm gonna rejoice. Now, now, understand, Paul was not writing this from a five-star hotel when he wrote this. No, he is in a Roman prison cell when he wrote this. He is, he is under the the, the the idea that his life could be. Ended at any given point. He's already taken that up in the the text earlier. He doesn't know if he's going to live or die. He He was living in very rough scenario. And he tells them, look, I have been abandoned by many. There are those who preach the gospel, but they do so at my peril, making fun of me and persecuting me. But then what does he say in chapter 1, verse 18? He says, nevertheless, in this I rejoice and will rejoice. Paul is not just giving them uh, something that says that he's not living by it himself. I want you to know this is a nevertheless, even so, always kind of joy. And I would submit to you that is a kind of joy that many of us don't often possess. Because our joy is tied to things going our way. Our joy is tied to circumstances going in the way that we like our circumstances to go. Joy is tied to the fact when everybody treats us the way that we think we ought to be treated. Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Notice what that nevertheless, even so always kind of joy produces though. In verse five, it leads to gentleness. Let your gentleness be known to all men the lord is at hand the greek word translated gentleness is often translated kindness or courteousness it's a word that was often used of an attitude of benevolence when when circumstances would normally dictate for a person to retaliate based upon the example of christ that paul has already pointed us to back in chapter 2 What we come to realize is that rather than being enslaved to our own hurt and our own anger that leads to arguing and fighting, we must become like Jesus and rejoice always and live with gentleness and kindness toward others, even toward those who hurt us. Paul's not done yet. If he's not rung your bell yet, just let just hang around because he's going to get to it. Verse 6, he follows up those two commands to rejoice and to be gentle with a command that says, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known, be made known to God. Now, obviously, this is another famous verse that many of you have probably learned and memorized. Notice that it includes not only a prohibition against something that we should not do, it also tells us what we ought to do in its place. The prohibition is against worrying. It's against wringing our hands and going through our minds. Well, all of the what ifs that can happen. This is I'm just going to be transparent with you. These are the verses that get me because I live in a world of what ifs. It is my mind that is constantly worried. Well, what if this happens or what if that goes wrong? What if this takes place over here? Am I prepared for that if that goes wrong? And my mind is constantly working that way. And I'm wringing my hands and worried about this and worried about that and worried about the next thing. And Paul says, stop it. Stop worrying and being anxious and instead, here comes the positive command, the prohibition against worry, the positive commands, go to the Lord in prayer. Replace your wringing of hands with folded hands before a sovereign God who loves you and gave his son to die for you and take your requests to him. Our requests are to be made known to God and adorned with extravagant praise to Him for the innumerable blessings that He has poured into our lives. Now hopefully, hopefully by now the unity of this section is beginning to become clearer because notice how all these verbs sort of fit together. If we begin to not just look at them as individual things, but we see them in the context of what He's saying, rather than bemoaning our circumstances and the people who may be contributing to the difficulties that we face, the Christian is to rejoice in the Lord always. We are to possess a nevertheless, even so, always kind of joy. And then when we submit our hearts and our emotions to God and allow Him to fill us with that kind of joy, then the result will be that... When we are tempted to get mad and retaliate at someone who has wronged us, we will instead let our gentleness and our kindness become evident to everyone. And furthermore, rather than wringing our hands and and worrying with fear over all kinds of things and potential troubles that may come our way, we will express complete confidence in the Lord, taking our request to Him in prayer, acknowledging in faith that the Lord is able to meet all of our needs. And listen, listen, when when such confidence in God is expressed through thankful prayer, well, that will bring release from anxiety and bitterness and provide us with something that is absolutely wonderful. Notice the promise of verse 7. Because Paul follows all of that up and he says this, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus our Lord. Listen, what we recognize is that the accumulated force of all of Paul's imperatives actually produces a beautiful result of peace. And not just any kind of peace, but the peace of God. When when I think of this kind of peace, I think of it as different than than just the kind of peace that you can get from, you know, doing things that, that kind of just take the, the edge off of stuff. I, I think of this as the different kind of peace than, than sometimes what, what the world can offer. In fact, Jesus himself in John chapter 14, verse 7, this peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives to you do I give. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. This is the kind of peace that transcends rationality. It's the kind of peace that, that, that runs past what we can imagine And that kind of peace is what guards how we should respond in the face of trials and struggles. And so as I reflected back on that, I I offer this to you as the second summary statement that I want to give you this morning with regard to what we read here in this passage. And I believe that not only should our relationships be governed by by the mind of Christ, but our responses should be guarded by the peace of God. Our responses should be guarded by the peace of God. Now, with that in mind, notice that Paul starts to finally bring things to this letter to a close. He's not quite done yet, but he, he's getting there, but he still, has, he still has a few less things that he wants to say, and, and he lists eight things that he believes every Christian should think about or meditate on or, or reflect upon. He says, whatever things are true, noble, just, pure, lovely, of good report, anything of virtue, anything praiseworthy. These are the things that a Christian ought to set his or her mind on. Brothers and sisters, what that literally means for us is simply this, that what we allow to be the focus of our minds and our meditations, the things that we choose to reflect upon and think about, well, such things are absolutely important. Consider what the Scriptures teach us. Matthew 22, verse 37, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and with all your mind. Romans 12, verse 2, And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Ephesians 4, 23, Be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Listen, what you think about what you meditate, what you cogitate on, what you allow to just sort of infiltrate your thoughts on a regular basis are important. In effect, here in Philippians, Paul has already commanded that we must have the mind of Christ, but here he warns us that our minds must be guided by heavenly things. In other words, we may be constantly tempted to, to, to embrace the things of our culture and the things that are constantly bombarding us from the outside, trying to get as much of the bandwidth that it can get of our thinking. But Paul says that we need to make sure that we meditate on these positive things, these things of God. 2 Corinthians 10 verse 5 says, we have to cast down arguments of every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. So, continuing with Paul's line of reasoning, because the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, is to guard our hearts and minds through Christ Jesus, then though we will be tempted to revert to our old way of thinking, a way of thinking that is influenced by our world and the culture in which we live, we must recognize that we are called to contemplate much more lofty and worthy things. In verse 9, Paul sheds light on a little what that is. What what those things are, according to what he tells the Philippian believers, they were to they were to uh, do the things and, and act in the way that he had acted. They were to adopt the way of thinking that he had adopted the things that they had received and heard and seen him demonstrate. They were to also do. Paul had given them personal instruction in the gospel faith, and he had given them his personal example of gospel living. He not only taught them the whatevers of verse 8. He taught them the true, noble, just, pure, lovely, good, report, virtuous, praiseworthy things. But he lived it out in front of them as well. And consequently, Paul unashamedly commanded them to put those same things into practice in their daily lives. And what he commands them to do, you and I must do as well. I like how one has written. He said the whatevers of verse 8 become reality on the basis of the choices that we make at our work desks, at the gas pump, driving in carpool. He could have left that one out, by the way. (laughs) And a thousand other anonymous occasions when we make the choices that shape our lives. The whatevers. The true, noble, just, pure, lovely, of good, report, virtuous, praiseworthy things Those are the things that we are to allow our minds to meditate on so that it affects the way that we act and respond in the normal living of our lives. What we learn is that we must be guided by the truth of the gospel in order that our lives will reflect the truth of the gospel. Brothers and sisters, with such teaching and modeling as he had provided, you want to know what? Euodia and Syntyche... And the rest of the members of the Philippian church had no excuse for behaving improperly. And neither do we. You see, in fact, we are even blessed beyond how Euodia and Syntyche were blessed. We have the completed canon of scripture right in front of us. That not only reveals to us the grace and the mercy that Jesus Christ had for us by dying in our place. It gives us the full understanding of how we are to live in light of that truth. That leads me to the final summary statement that I have for you this morning. Our reflections, or you might think about what we think on, what we meditate on, our reflections must be guided by the Word of God. What you think about, what you allow to infiltrate your mind on a consistent and constant basis needs to be guided by the Word of God. And then notice there in verse 9 the result that such a lifestyle brings. He says the God of peace will be with you. Back in verse 7, he says that we will have the peace of God. Here in verse 9, he says we will have the God of peace. Do you notice that? Listen, what that means is, is that your life is going to be when you put into practice these things, when Jesus Christ is your Savior and your confidence is in Him, and you are living your life according to the way that it's outlined right here, the peace that surpasses all understanding will be yours, and then the God who gives that peace will be yours. It is not only the peace of God, it is the God of peace who will overshadow you with his care. And that is the promise that God has given us through his word. And we who have by faith believed in Christ and received his salvation by trusting in his death and resurrection can claim that promise. What I want you to know is that this passage that we've examined is, is this morning is immensely practical it really doesn't leave any particular part of our lives untouched. And the reality is we can't sidestep its truth. I reflected on it this week, and I just sort of thought about it with regard to my own life. And I concluded that from this passage, we come to understand that the Lord expects Christian behavior to break the bonds of what would be normal behavior for us. What I mean by that is because we have been those of us who have been saved, we are new creations in Christ who we once were is no longer who we are now. And what we have to realize is that how we once defined the bonds of our relationship, how we once determined our responses to opposition and difficulty and the things that we used to reflect on and, and to meditate on. Well, all of that has changed And should be different now that we belong to the Lord. The old person we once were has been crucified with Christ. Paul says it elsewhere. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives within me. And what that means is that no longer do I have the excuse to live like I once did. Before I became a believer. My relationships now must be governed by the mind of Christ. And my responses must be guarded by the peace of God... And my reflections must be guided by the word of God. And all of that leads me then to my sermon in the sentence this morning, which is this. It is only as we allow our minds to reflect on Christ and the truth of his word and live in obedience to that truth. That our responses and relationships will emulate those of Christ and bring his joy and peace into our lives. Really it's, really, it's a simple construct. We, we trust in Christ and give ourselves to Him. And then we systematically, day by day, go about living our lives in the example that He set for us. And then we receive the beauty of that which He has promised us. Joy, regardless of our circumstances, and peace, that surpasses all understanding and a God who has promised that he will never leave us and never forsake us and will one day receive us to himself. That's how we are to live our lives. And when we do, that allows us to bear with those who may hurt us and struggle through the disputes and the difficulties that we go through. Here's the question. Do you have the mind of Christ? Are you living your life with the mind of Christ as your guide? Are you operating from his mindset? Does his example govern how you relate and how you respond to others? Is your life guarded by his peace? Do you have peace with God that allows you to have peace of God, and peace with your fellow man? Are you regularly ingesting the things of the world into your thoughts, or is it your regular practice to focus on the true, noble, just, pure, lovely, of good report, virtuous, and praiseworthy things? The practical nature of this text forces us to ask ourselves some very hard questions but it also forces us to submit ourselves to the Lordship of Christ. And so I would simply ask this morning, have you done that? Have you by faith received the Lord as your Savior? Is he Lord of your life? Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God, and it is for the people of God. Lord, we thank you for this day and for this opportunity to open your word, and Lord, to allow it to, penetrate our lives and penetrate our hearts, rattle, the, rattle our cages, ring bells, draw attention to things that we would rather not think about. But Lord, you desire to, to make us and to conform us into your image and to do with us that which is necessary. And so I pray that you would not find hardened hearts and resistant hearts this morning, but, but malleable hearts and softened hearts to what your Holy Spirit would desire to do. So it's my prayer this morning that you would exalt yourself, and bring glory to yourself by bringing conviction into our lives and that that conviction would would issue forth in repentance. I pray these things in the name of Jesus and for his sake. Amen.